Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the Graham Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'll also be the Robert M. Zinman ABI Scholar for the spring 2016. So we're here today to talk about a potential rider to the Omnibus Appropriations Bill pending before Congress that is relevant to the bankruptcy and restructuring world. And more specifically, it amends the Trust Indenture Act of 1939, which affects the ability to do out-of-court restructurings. Joining me is Mark Rowe, the David Berg Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, who has thought and written about the Trust Indenture Act and restructuring for many years. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. So we're talking today because this legislation amending the Trust Indenture Act is attached, like many other things, to the Omnibus Appropriations Bill. Can you remind us of what the TIA is and why the bankruptcy world should be paying attention? Uh, sure, absolutely. So the Trust Indenture Act of 1939 regulates uh, the duties of trustees under bond indentures and the relationship between the bondholders and the trustee. Um, the relevant provision that's been in controversy uh, is the rule that no bondholder can be ousted of uh, his or her principal amount, interest rate, maturity date, the core payment terms, uh, without the bondholder's own consent. Um, there's some background to this uh, that's relevant for uh, for bankruptcy. Uh, the Trust Indenture Act was put in place in the 1930s and it was largely a companion to the Bankruptcy Act of 1938. Um, both the Bankruptcy Act of 38, uh, as interpreted, and the Trust Indenture Act had individualized creditor consent as core to the restructuring of creditors. So in 38, um, in bankruptcy, there would be uh, typically no approved bankruptcy in Chapter 10 unless the court concluded that the plan was consistent with absolute priority. Otherwise, uh, the fear was that insiders could capture the process and the vote to the detriment of minority bondholders. Uh, so majority votes in 1938 in Chapter 10 weren't in themselves binding. Uh, William O. Douglas, uh, then the chair of the SEC, the future Supreme Court Justice, largely designed the Trust Indenture Act and designed it to have a relatively analogous set of rules outside of bankruptcy. So no votes to reposition the bond's key payment terms would bind dissenters. Um, so the power of dissenters would be to force a bankruptcy, but in the mindset of the New Deal and William O. Douglas in the 1930s, uh, that wasn't a particularly bad result. Um, the judge would uh, would look over the uh, look over the uh, the bankruptcy and make sure the result was appropriate and fair. So um, then, uh, fast forward to 1978, and as everyone listening to this podcast knows, the system of bankruptcy where votes um, and deals couldn't be made was, was just seen as being much too rigid and too costly. So 1129A8 and 1126 of the code let the parties make a deal by a vote, two-thirds in dollar amount, one-half in number, and the law, the judge largely doesn't check the result. So while the 1930s result for bankruptcy uh, was altered in 1978, the 1930s result for the Trust Indenture Act uh, was not. It stayed in place with its ban on binding votes on payment terms uh, sticking, uh, and it often proves to be sticky in trying to restructure a firm outside of bankruptcy. So it sounds like you and perhaps others think it's a time to rethink the Trust Indenture Act more generally, and yet this legislation, or the rider to the, the Omnibus Appropriations Bill, 
seems to be reacting to something more specific out of some court opinions. So what, can you tell us a little bit about those court opinions and what was so striking about them? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's striking about them is that is um, they've only been about uh, five, as I count them, uh, opinions on this provision of the Trust and Indenture Act. Uh, uh, no majority vote combined uh, bind the minority. And one of the things that's striking is that two of them have come down in the last uh, in the last year. Uh, the prior decision split on interpretations. So the, the key issue in really all of these decisions has been exit consent style exchange offers. So um, in large part, the exit consents react to the, three, the Trust Indenture Act 316B bar on votes um, in that with the bar on votes, people who are trying to put together a deal outside of bankruptcy um, can face problems in that a handful of holdouts can sometimes stymie a deal. Uh, and uh, the reaction to the holdouts has been over the last couple of decades, either a prepack, we just go into bankruptcy, and if the only issue is a few holdouts, um, the non-vote under the Trust Indenture Act can be trumped by a vote under a prepack um, in, in a quick bankruptcy. If a prepack isn't in the cards, uh, what uh, some of the players try to do is use these exit consents. Um, so in the exit consent, what usually happens is the bondholders are asked to vote on those things that they can vote on. Um, covenants like uh, debt earns covenants, negative pledge clauses, security requirements, sinking funds, guarantees. And the bondholders who are ready to participate in the exchange vote to strip the bond indenture of protective covenants. Um, sometimes they'll add detrimental terms like extended subordination provisions. But the voting and exchanging bondholders uh, don't really have much incentive to look carefully at the negative terms because moments after the vote is effective, they will exchange their bonds for a new set of bonds with a new set of terms. So they're not particularly uh, concerned whether the, whether the uh, 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 bonds that remain unexchanged um, end up losing value because the protections are stripped out of the, uh, out of the bonds. The dissenters, the holdouts, can then sometimes conclude that they better take the deal uh, or fall into this planned death trap because some of the dissenters will think um, they don't like the deal, they don't think it's a good deal, but they fear that doing nothing um, will find themselves, uh, will lead them to have um, uh, be stuck with bonds stripped of the covenants. Um, so what we've got is two, what strike me as unwholesome distortions which go in opposite directions. Um, dissenters can't be bound by a vote because the Trust and Venture Act bars a vote, uh, but that can lead the majority that uh, fully believes a restructuring is sound to refuse the restructuring because the holdouts would just get too much value um, if the holdouts don't participate, but the exchanges, exchangers, the willing exchangers participate, they'd find too much value flowing to the uh, to the dissenters. And then in reaction, we get an exit consent uh, um, offer which can twist the arms of the dissenters into uh, into going into going along. Um, basically, what the decisions did was uh, they they looked at Section 316B of the Trust Indenture Act um, and concluded that 316B 
um, uh, was inconsistent with the exit consent uh, restructurings. Um, and uh, because of that, they have effectively struck down struck down the uh, the uh, the uh, the restructurings. So they gave a, a a broader reading to the protections to dissenting investors. Is that a fair um, characterization? That's fair in the sense that the prior decisions had gone um, in opposite ways. There's a, a 1999. Southern District decision uh, that basically did the same thing as the current decision, saying uh, that um, the exit consent exchange offer involved in um, in that litigation was barred by 316B. Um, and then there were two other decisions, one in the District of Kansas um, and another in uh, uh, Delaware Bankruptcy Court that said, um, as long as the legal right to sue is preserved, even if the entity being sued had no assets left, uh, that's all the Trust and Denture Act would protect. So these two decisions came down on the um, on the broader reading side, that the Trust and Denture Act was intended to do something more than something semi-formalistic, um, um, and that's what they did. One of the things that makes it a, a unique and controversial is it uh, it's the potential reading of the decisions doesn't have a sharp line. So in the uh, education management case, uh, the, the court went deep into the legislative history um, and says that the legislative history shows that interpreting the words, what the statute intended to do was to preserve the bondholder's practical ability to obtain repayment. Um, the problem with practical ability is that it's hard to draw the line as to where um, uh, where the statute ends, if it's practical, if it's practical ability, that's the uh, that's the touchstone. You know, deleting a negative pledge clause can affect the practical ability of bondholders to uh, to collect. Um, but everybody thinks, uh, at least until now, that the that a negative pledge clause can be controlled by a majority vote. So we can see the the rider, the proposed rider to the omnibus appropriations bill is responding to the education management case, the Caesars case, and it seems like it's trying to do so even retroactively. So can you tell us a little bit about what the legislation is doing and whether you see any issues with it? Um, so what the legislation proposes to do is to uh, explicitly state that 316B should be be narrowed so that the bondholder's right that can't be ousted by majority vote is the legal right to sue and obtain uh, to sue the debtor even if it turns out that the transactions lead to the debtor having no assets no assets to repay um, uh, uh, it's the statute is set up so that it'll have retroactive effects, so that it will determine the outcome of the ongoing uh, appeals in seizures and education management. My impression is this kind of retroactive effect is a little unusual, um, and it's kind of directing it's, it's directing the outcome of litigation litigation in in uh, in, in progress. Um, and I suppose that's where. Um, the impetus for the change is coming from people who are not happy with the interpretations that the courts are putting on the trust and denture act would like to have uh, would like to have those uh, would like to have those changed um, one problem with doing business like this 
uh, in Congress is Congress doesn't have the advantage now of wide input from the entire bond market, from the Securities and Exchange Commission of what the best result would be. So uh, I would urge Congress, if they're going to act, um, that they be a little bit uh, modest and humble in what they're doing, um, uh, and uh, going forward without the SEC's impact uh, input or no wide input from uh, from uh, from the bar is sometimes not a wise idea. So what they might want to do is put a rider to the rider uh, along the lines of um, uh, 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 new rules uh, can be issued by the SEC governing. Um, the restructuring rules uh, otherwise put into the Trust Indenture Act um, so that uh, you get an, uh, an administrative agency that can think this through more carefully um, instead of uh, putting a rider into an appropriations bill kind of at the last uh, at the last minute. Um, so my preferred rider would be would be something along the lines of after this after June 30th, 2016. Uh, Bonds issued in the United States can have a binding vote uh, in, under terms and conditions, binding vote on payment terms under terms and conditions as um, as approved by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Your comments led me to think about a, a letter that 18 law professors sent to House and Senate leaders, uh, including including you. Professor Rowe, uh, asking Congress not to pass this legislation on such a fast track, even though the signatories to the letter do not share one vision of what the Trust Indenture Act should do and how it should be reformed. But everybody agreed that this was not the path to take in, in doing the amendments uh, and ask for public comment and to have hearings. And so you've given us a little bit of your sense of substantively what you would like to see. But if, if Congress were to take you up on this and say, let's, let's hold some hearings early in the year, what is it, what questions should they be asking? What is the information that they don't have? I would advise them, if, if asked, that to start by exploring two questions. Uh, the, the first is, uh, why shouldn't bondholders be able to bind themselves to a vote in the 21st century bond market? Um, is 316B uh, a relic of the 1930s, uh, perhaps appropriate for the 1930s bond market, and is it still appropriate today? Um, after all, we use votes in bankruptcy. We use votes for restructuring a lot of other securities. Stockholders usually vote. Why shouldn't bondholders vote? Um, and if we decided that a bondholder vote was appropriate, then a lot of the things in the rider become uh, superfluous going forward. Um, we don't have to look at whether there's a, a legal right to repayment or whether it's a practical right to repayment, because if the bondholders vote in an uncoerced vote to change the terms of their bond, uh, that, would be, uh, that would be binding. Um, the second thing that, that, that I recommend that uh, the hearings look into is uh, the exit consent transaction validation, which is essentially what the uh, the, the rider would do, um, is that a wise idea? Um, should it be governed by SEC rules? Um, should it um, uh, should it be not not be allowed to go forward? Um, and then non-specifically, uh, which I already mentioned, um, there are going to be other people with uh, with expertise and views beyond the people pushing the uh, pushing for this pushing for this rider. And Congress ought to pull them in and see if other 
players in the bond market um, have different views on what needs to be done and the best way best way to go forward. Um, this is happening too fast for something that's as important to uh, to the bond market as um, um, uh, as uh, as the voting rules for restructuring restructuring bonds. So that's all the time we have for today. So I want to thank Professor Mark Rowe for this time and conversation, and thanks to the listeners of this edition of the ABI podcast. I'm looking forward to joining you for more editions in 2016. Thank you, Melissa. 